Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Eurasian Americans. I am your host, Jerry Wan, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to episode 63 of our series here on Tuesday, July 28th. Today, I get the chance to talk to Tanya Zeng, who is one of the co-founders and owners of NimbleMade. It's an Asian-American-owned business that actually started because of a problem that two Asian-American men had noticed about their wardrobe. Hope you enjoy listening to this show and look forward to hearing from you on what you thought of it. I encourage you to continue to support your own Asian-American businesses in your life, including restaurants, retailers, and everything else. This episode of The Asian-Americans is sponsored by the Asian Podcast Network, where we're creating a community of podcasters, industry folks, guests, and fans of Asian podcasts globally. Join us at Asian Podcast Network on Facebook, Instagram, or just go to asianpodcastnetwork.com and you'll see the links to join us. Thanks so much. And here now is my conversation with Tanya. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. Uh, wherever you are, whenever you may be listening to this, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. Um, we are uh, just at the end of July. And depending on where you are in the country, um, things are either really bad or just bad. Um, from a infection and hospitalization perspective. Uh, but it's also a time where I think we're being disillusioned to think that things might be going back to normal as baseball has opened up again. Um, basketball is about to start later this week. And so stay focused. Um, we'll get through this. We can get through this. And for all of you listening, um, please stay healthy and, and please stay safe. And on a more important note, we are 98 days away from the election too. So register to vote. Call your friends, do whatever you can, because um, we got to win. So, uh, and if you thought that was a political statement and you don't want to stop and you want to stop listening to us, um, I think I can live with that. Um, so as Asian Americans in our country, we often, um, or I guess not often, we go shopping, we find clothes. Um, if you're a guy listening, um, you know, maybe when you were younger, your mom buys your clothes for you and you just wear whatever. Um you know, and nobody really teaches us uh, to dress for work or to dress properly. Um, I think we grew up, I grew up with influences, uh, both conscious and subconsciously from the fashion world that we had to fit this look if we wanted to be successful. And I, I know it's that more more of a, a deep conversation there. But I think when we went to, you know, stores, whether it was uh, a department store or just a retail store to look for professional clothing that we could wear to work, not only did we not see people that looked like us on the banners and on the catalogs, um, we also realized that clothes didn't really fit us because um, we're not, they weren't necessarily made for our body type. Um, and so our guest today and her partner has fixed that exact problem. And if you're thinking, why do we need different dress shirts for Asian men? Well, stay tuned and, and we'll learn how. Um, so without further ado, so much excitement and pleasure uh, to welcome fellow Angelino. Uh, Tanya Zhang to the show. Hi, Tanya. Hi, thank you so much for having me. That was a great intro. I wish um, you could just do that every time I walked into a room. That'd be great. We could. Um, we'll just walk around. Um, remember those Starbucks commercials? Um, God, it was like when Frappuccino first came out. Mm. They had these montage of like crowds of people hyping. Uh, one guy's, <laughs> I think, name was Glenn. So they had oh. like a band following him and it would just like hype him up, whatever way. Um, we can do that. Yeah, um, that's true. Post post COVID, so stay the hell home, so we can we can, we can hype up Tanya wherever she goes. Um, That'd be great. So Tanya is the co-founder of a company called NimbleMade, 
And Nimble Maid is a direct-to-consumer men's clothing company um, that's actually made for uh, different body types. But in particular, I think, you know, your, your target demographic, uh, one of your main target demographic is um, Asian men who might have a more smaller or slender body type. Um, and if we read on your website, your co-founder has a quote that says, I just want a shirt that fits. Mm-hmm. And so um, we're going to learn more about your company. We're going to learn about how you started it, um, what excites you, your recent move from a corporate perspective and a personal perspective from New York City back to Los Angeles. Uh, but I think to get the best context of learning all about your journey and what you're doing now, it is always, always important here on the show to learn about how you became an Asian American and in your situation, a Chinese American uh, to be more specific. So uh, share with us sort of the, the Zhang family journey to America. Um, when did you guys move here, whether it was your parents or your grandparents? Uh, where did you guys move to? And, and share with us a little bit more context on your early years of your life. Yeah, sure. So my parents moved to the U.S., I would say, in their mid-20s. Um, they moved here when they were young, married, uh, and was really trying to look for better opportunities to kind of raise a family. Mm-hmm. So they moved, actually initially moved to New York, uh, you know, living in the Bronx, uh, making T-shirts in Chinatown, uh, my mom being a waitress and all that. So really, I think, spent a few months, maybe up to a year there before moving to Los Angeles. So I was born in uh, the Singapore Valley area, um, the 626, if you're kind of in the area and you know it, uh, it's a very Asian community, but that's where I was born. Uh, I was born there and uh, really went through the public school education there. Um, so I am first uh, first generation Chinese American born in the US. Uh, my sister was born here as well. And so we really grew up here as, uh, yeah, the first generation Asian Americans kind of working with that duality of being Asian, but also American, but also wanting to be tied culturally to our roots. And so often we would go back to China, you know, during summer vacations when you had like three months off uh, before like college. And we would really spend a lot of time there. And, you know, like most of my family, um, most of my family are still, still in China. So a lot of my relatives, cousins, they're all there. So kind of a time for us to reconnect. That's awesome. Um, what were some of your earlier influences? Uh, we know what you do now, which is something that most people probably wouldn't have guessed. But um, growing up, um, you know, you just shared with us a little bit of what your parents' earlier professions were. And um, as, as many of our immigrant parents go through, that's not what they studied to be. That's not what they wanted to be. It's just what they had to do to survive. But um, tell us a little bit about your earlier influences and what did you dream of wanting to be when you were younger? Mm-hmm. What earlier influences I feel like from a really young age I was really into art um, because both parents are working so hard they kind of had to put me in some sort of after school program because they can't pick me up at like 3 p.m for example and so I was enrolled in like art classes after school and I really really like them you know it's your kind of your fundamental like sketching and then painting and all that stuff but I thought that was really exciting that was really fun I learned that I was more of a visual learner in that way Uh, I would try really really hard in school but you know reading text in books was difficult for me to understand whereas seeing charts and infographics was a lot easier um so yeah I think at an early age uh I along with my parents knew that 
uh, I wanted to pursue something in art. I mean, in terms of the influences, um, it's it's hard to say. I feel like maybe this is the answer most people on your podcast give, but I think my parents for sure. Um, my dad has his own business actually in China, so that's where he works and is uh, most of the time. My mom, she became a realtor uh, after switching many, many, many jobs in the U.S. Um, so kind of along the same vein of, oh, you can make your own schedule, you can make your own hours, you can choose who's, who clients, which clients you want to take. And so it was interesting because I had, I had seen this kind of like entrepreneurial um, uh, like careers that they had without really knowing or thinking that they were entrepreneur. So um, that I think that's a very subliminal kind of like, oh, this is they have really cool like jobs and they like their jobs and this is an interesting lifestyle that they have. Um, so I think that's something that I was surrounded by and learned from and thought that that was really cool. What did they want you to be? Mm, I think for the most part, my parents are pretty open minded, obviously not like, you know, I I think if I said I wanted to be an actress, they'd be kind of like, uh, maybe not. (laughs) Um, So not like super open minded, but open minded enough, I think, um, at the early age when I was already kind of like drawing and painting and like voicing that I really liked art, they're like, oh, this is like something you can like make a career out of. So enough to kind of consider that the arts were a viable career. Um, I don't think they were like, oh, you should be a doctor. You should be a realtor. Like my mom, I think they're like, be happy and then choose something that you like to do and make money. So you don't have to work so hard and like waitress at restaurants and stuff like that. I think you you bring up some interesting points. I think entrepreneurship or, you know, things in business for ourselves, whether it's actually running a business or, you know, being in the service business like real estate, um, our parents' generation looked at those things as things that they had to do just to survive. Um, We view entrepreneurship more of as a choice because we do have other options to go get traditional employment. Mm -hmm. And I I think when it comes to um, some of those conversations with parents around entrepreneurship, one of the things that we often hear is from the parents' perspective of like, why are you doing that, right? Mm-hmm. Like we busted our ass so that you could take the more traditional or more safe route of getting a job. And um, there's obviously, you know, merits and, and challenges to both sides. But, um, you know, we talk to some folks here on the show that are definitely entrepreneurially minded and have proven so. And other folks mm-hmm. are okay being in, you know, a more traditional um, and, and defined sort of a system. Um, but I do think the context in which we view entrepreneurship and, you know, um, we hear some stats all the time, like, oh, Asian Americans love entrepreneurship. And like, no, you idiot. Like we had to, right? Because mm-hmm. our parents couldn't get jobs in corporate America, right? Yeah. Like, so um, that's a very good context. Um, you grew up when, and you went to high school in San Marino. And yeah. as you alluded to earlier, if you're familiar with the LA area, um, San Marino is uh, technically diverse, but it's not very much so because there's a lot of Asian Americans who go there. Yeah. Um, what was that like going, you know, going through your adolescent and your your growth years, you know, surrounded by people who look like you, shared your food, shared your culture? Um, and then, you know, what were some of your uh, thoughts there and wanting to pursue higher education? You ended up going to UC San Diego. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us a little bit about your high school and college journey. Yeah, Sure. Um, yeah, so kind of to your point, San Marino, definitely less diverse than I guess more, uh, most school districts. Uh, a lot of my friends were 
were Asian, Asian American. Um, I didn't personally have uh, a lot of like white friends. Uh, I mean, I feel there's probably just a handful of like black students at the school as well. And so I think growing up kind of in this bubble, you don't really realize it. Um, it's you, you definitely kind of feel that shift when you go to college, um, which is, you know, kind of a bigger pool of people. So naturally, it just uh, statistically has more diverse people. Um, that was a big, big kind of shift uh, in terms of like my relationships with people or like really getting to know other cultures. Um, while, you know, I, I really cherish my my memories and my times with like my friends in high school. Um, it, I just felt like it looking back on it retrospectively, it was just so like, not like tunnel vision, but just so small uh, in the bigger uh, scheme of the world. Um, everything from like my thinking, or like like how, how I would think, how I would approach problems, it becomes like a really, I think just based off the influences in my in my community, it, there's only kind of like one way to, to, to think about things or to approach problems or to, uh, you know, like debate for for example, whereas getting that exposure and getting that experience, talking to people of a different background, different culture really opens up your mind and your perspective. And so I definitely saw that kind of shift going from San Marino High School to UC San Diego. I mean, still, you know, a decent Asian population there, uh, but more diverse, um, I would say kind of jumping from, college um i I had an internship in new york city right after college and that's where it was like wow now this is this is diverse right so it's 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 been a yeah it's been a really interesting journey but i think it's been it's been a good one lots of lots of lessons learned (laughs) um so you sort of i mean not not homecoming because you weren't born there but because your parents went there you your first job out of college was in new york city working at a, a very big global uh, advertising agency. How did you end up choosing and, and pursuing graphic design and choosing to work for a, a big advertising agency? And and how did New York play into that decision? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of going through my art classes, I was trying to think about a way where I could make a career out of it. I didn't, I, I knew I didn't want to be like a studio painter and like be painting and selling paintings definitely not my strong suit and so I was kind of thinking oh maybe like interior design kind of just like thinking about all these different uh fields within the larger umbrella of art uh where I can make a career out of it um and so uh I eventually kind of landed on graphic design I think because as the technology was getting better there were you know YouTube videos on how to use Photoshop. And so you're like, oh, I can do this. And there's a free trial, free trial on Adobe. Yeah, like, let's just learn some things. And so it's kind of like, kind of uh, interesting to be painting digitally. And I thought that was a, that was a very unique thing, because I felt like it was also uh, a little bit easier than like, you need to wash your brushes afterwards. And it's just like a huge mess, you got to wear a smock, you know, so it's just like, I just felt like it was something instant that I could just do and make and start creating right off the bat. So that was really exciting. Um, I went to UC San Diego for a major in computing in the arts. Um, UC San Diego is more of a, it's definitely a STEM school. So science, tech, engineering, math, um, where I would say they didn't have a traditional kind of arts program. Like if you went to Rhode Island School of Design, uh, it was more kind of like conceptual art, thinking about 
um, ideas, think about theories, and how can you create products or create ideas that challenge uh, norms, for example. So it was almost like a really, I wouldn't say it's your traditional like art school, basically, or art degree. Um, and so I think for my degree in college, uh, I got a really good understanding about how to think think about things at a higher level, like at a higher conceptual level. Um, and then also, uh, while I was at UC San Diego, I got a part-time job on campus as a graphic designer for the school. Mm. Okay. And so practically, that's kind of how I was able to create a portfolio coming out of school was just just from the four years I was there as a graphic designer and uh, creating flyers, t-shirts for clubs, orgs, for school events, I was able to uh, be able to flesh out a really, uh, I guess, yeah, like a really good portfolio uh, coming out. Um, and so in college, I applied for a advertising program called MAIP, that's M-A-I-P, uh, stands for Multicultural Advertising Internship Program. They basically work, they partner up or they, it's kind of like a, like if you were in, um, like in college, if you were in like the Greek system or sororities and like fraternities and there's like an auction system or like, like a bidding system where you pair up with like a big or a little or like something like that. It's kind of like that where they have major, uh, yeah. advertising companies along with vetted, uh, recent grads from college. And then they have kind of, kind of have this like bidding system where the agencies can pick their intern of choice. And so I was picked as TBWA Shia Day, New York's uh, art direction intern that summer after graduation. Whoa. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> how, did, how, how did you turn that into something more permanent? Uh, yeah. So, hmm, yeah, that's a good. I mean, advertising, if you're familiar with the industry, is really high turnover rate. It's really cutthroat, long hours, low pay. Uh, great, great experience. Great experience. Like you work on really exciting projects. It's so creative and it's just so, it's so different from like any other job. So um, yeah, so all that to say is after my internship that summer, it was like a three month internship, I asked if I could like stay on. Um, they said that at that time there were no open roles. And so I was like, oh, you know, like I'm around. Um, this is kind of, you know, I had just moved to New York for the internship only. So they were providing housing. So after the internship, I would have to find my own housing. And we all know like New York City rent is expensive. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, hey, I'm here. I'm, I'm, I'm down to stick around for a few months. Like if you want to extend my internship on a month to month basis, like I can oh. help out X, Y, Z. So like really hustled it, really kind of like uh, really negotiated my way to, I think, stay there for more months. And I think one month uh, later, they had won a huge client and that creative director uh, decided to hire me on his team. That's awesome. Um, I know 2020 is not the year of the internship. Uh, yeah. Thanks, COVID. But if you mm -hmm. are in your internship and um, you don't know what you want to do after, uh, maybe you, like Tanya, are interning post-grad or you're planning to take a gap year or whatever it might be, um, pay special attention to what Tanya is sharing with you. Uh, everything is negotiable. Mm -hmm. And you can extend your internship um, if they find value in you. Um, interns, you know, uh, even the paid ones provide an immense uh, return on investment for employers. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can continue to provide good work, 
Um, think about obviously as an extended job interview, right? Do they want to hire you and do they want to make an investment in your long term? Um, but I would also highly suggest if you are listening to this and you are a student or a recent grad um, looking for, you know, different opportunities, um, consider doing that as well. I, I think that's, um, I wanted to point that out. I didn't want that to let let, let people just like, oh, she extended her internship. No, you can mm-hmm. do it. Um, Definitely. And, and, and so, I mean, yeah, always remember at the end of the day, uh, businesses, small or large, are run by human beings and and then hopefully you work with some good human beings um, as, as you navigate your career. Um, so you're in New York City, you negotiate and you talk your way and you prove yourself way into more of a permanent role. Um, t- tell us about the next few things that you did, which was you worked, You then you went to a, a startup and then you went to a, a large professional services firm, um, all in the art space. Uh, what are some of the lessons that you learned creating art um, for brands big and small um, startup and large, um, in, in terms of the things that are helping you today in your business? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, after, after Shiat Day, uh, well, I guess at Shiat Day, I had a really, really good experience working with consumer product goods, like clients that sold consumer product goods. Um, my clients were like, like H&M, Nissan, like just, just really, really big ones, just because of the nature of the firm, they were like very large. And so it was great to, to, to work on these large campaigns that had large budgets behind them. Um, so we can get really creative and, you know, we could pitch, oh, this celebrity can come in and do this like spa or this TV commercial. And they'd be like, that's a great idea. So, you know, it was just this whole world of like, wow, they have a lot of money. We can just do anything we want. <laughs> so that was really exciting. Uh, you kind of got to see the the range and what was kind of like possible. Um, after Shiat Day, when I moved to a fintech startup also in Manhattan, um, I was their first design hired there. Um, I think at that point, they were probably at like a C round. Um, they were basically VC backed um, financial tech startup, uh, had been running for a few years already. The founder had a track record. So, you know, it was a kind of up and coming uh, startup. Uh, so I think but when, when I got there, they were probably already like 100 employees. So we're not saying super small, like five or anything like that. 100 to 150 employees there. But me being like one of the first design hires there. And so there, um, I worked as their kind of in-house ad agency. Um, so less like marketing materials uh, and more like let's work on these really cool creative ads for the startup, but in-house. Um, so that's just kind of a distinction I want to make. But yeah, I think uh, working in that startup space, it's you definitely have less budget. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's pros and cons, right? So you have less budget, but things get approved much faster, right? You're working in-house. You're like, hey, what do you think about this? Just walk over to the to the founder or something like that. What do you think? Cool, done. I mean, in, in that startup environment where it's fast and people are passionate and they're eager to kind of make this brand into something bigger, uh, you have a lot more agency to create um, to, to create things. And so, you know, things were approved faster. I felt like I had more of a voice in the startup environment um, than I did at the ad agency just because 
uh, Shia is a very is a very old uh, but like large agency network, and so you know there's policies in place, there's a bureaucracy kind of set, you know, it kind of has to go through these rounds of approvals. Sure. Um, whereas at the startup, maybe the maybe your only like supervisor is like like one guy, and then after him is the founder. So very fast, very fun. Um, I felt like they took my opinions really seriously. I mean, at that time, I was only a few years out of college, so pretty young. And so that was a really unique opportunity. I think I learned that while, I mean, also the, the perks and the benefits are great. Like if you work at a tech startup, they're like, you know, it's, it's your class of sure. like free food, like great health insurance, like, I don't know, like um, something fun on Fridays, every Friday, you know, for example. Um, so that was, it was a great change of pace for me personally, because at my ad agency, I was getting a little burned out uh, at the, at like the second, second and eight half year mark. Uh, I was getting really burned out. So, so yeah, great change of pace. Talk to me about some of your experience. So you worked at um, Shia Day, and then you worked at a startup in New York City, and then you worked at uh, probably one of the world's largest professional services firms. Um, coming from San Marino and UC San Diego, and then going to New York, which technically is a very, very diverse part of the world, yet in, in some of the professional verticals that you've worked in, um, obviously, we know that they're not the most diverse places. Um, and, and now knowing what we know that you do now, which is... Um, a brand targeted specifically towards um, Asian Americans. Um, what were some of the lessons that you learned in audience or, or brand targeting and segmentation that um, gave you sort of the insight into wanting to start something that represented us and people that look like me and you? Mm. I guess more like me, not much like you because you make dress shirts, but. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, I don't know. I feel like honestly, honestly, I don't, I don't know if I had a good idea for who my audience was going to be for Nimble Made. I think when you start your own business, it's really, it's really scary. There's a lot of unknowns. There's not so much of a structured path to follow or the right um, answers to your questions. And so I think to answer your question, it, I think Nimble Made was created off of this really painful and annoying problem that people in my community were experiencing. Like seeing, like seeing my dad, like since he works abroad in, in China and coming whenever he had the time to come to the States, I treasured that time a lot because I never got to see him, right? It was like Christmas. That's pretty much it. So it'd be like Christmas and I'd be like, oh, you know, like we should go shopping. Um, and for him to tell me that American dress shirts don't fit him, um, I distinctly like remember, like, remember that because I would say, you know, dad, you're always wearing the same clothes and you're like a businessman you gotta look good right and he would just you know right off the bat just say american dress shirts don't fit me that was really like like gut-wrenching because i wanted him to feel like all his hard work had paid off he was in a country that he felt uh included in um that made clothes for him like something so simple like clothes that you wear every single day um it shocked me that he said that and it hurt me like personally that 
it, it felt like he didn't see himself belonging in this country that he worked so hard to bring us here. So I, it's the same. It's the same kind of struggle with Wesley, my co-founder. He's like five five in height, around one hundred and forty like pounds. So he's definitely slimmer, shorter, um, and he worked in finance in New York City as an analyst at a big bank and. It was a struggle for him, like for him to need to wear a dress shirt every single day to work, and just not being able to find it. And trust me, we've like with with my dad and with Wesley, we've we've shopped and we've looked and we've tried all the brands online, and you know we've asked around, and it was tough. You always had to get them tailored, or you just kind of had to sacrifice either price, fit, or like comfort. Um, and so I, I think it, it was just from a place of empathy of that pain and that annoyance, um, those kind of experiences that I felt like it was uh, a gut, a gut feeling that this was a market that we could try to try to target. So let's talk more about the idea. Uh, you shifted to starting Nimble Made with your co-founder, Wesley. Um, how did you guys two meet? And, and of all the things that you guys found in commonality, like, frustration over ill-fitting slim dress shirts um how, how did that come into the conversation and eventually lead you both of you uh to quit what you were doing professionally to you know go down this path together yeah uh, wesley and i met on coffee meets bagel a dating app so we met in 2015 that was uh we had both at that same time graduated college he went to boston U- University. He's from New Jersey, so he's very East Coast. Um, I was obviously there for my ad internship already, and so we we swiped right, basically right when we got there. So <laughs> good timing. Um, and from there, you know, we've been dating for about like five years now. Uh, we started the business about almost two years ago, um, and so we were kind of already dating for a few years. Uh, we were living together as well already, and so it was it was when Wesley was still working as an analyst at his bank um, that you know it was just this persistence and like how frustrated he was with not being able to find a dress shirt. He was born in Taiwan and he moved to the states really early on and so he is by definition an immigrant. And so I think he struggles a little bit more with finding kind of like his place and how he belongs in this like duality of his identity because he's mm. born in Taiwan, his English is, was not as good as me having learned it as a first language obviously and so um, I think that's an interesting that's an interesting dynamic between our relationship because while we both are Asian Americans, uh, he's technically an immigrant, right? So a different set of circumstances for sure. And so it was him, you know, coming home and saying, "I need to get another dresser. Like, where should I get it? We've already tried all these different things." And at that time, we were also contemplating about like starting a business together because we were tired of clocking in like long nights, long hours at work at our corporate jobs. Um, because we just didn't felt challenged or it was unfulfilling work or we were kind of just like a cog in the machine type of type of thing. Um, we were getting a little bit frustrated. So I think we were looking for an outlet. Um, and it was just that one day he came back and he was like, like, I still can't find a treasure that fit me after, you know, 20 something years being alive um, that we were like, oh, maybe we can just make you a, maybe we can just make you a dress shirt. So did you guys make a dress shirt? Was that your first prototype? 
We did make him a dress shirt. Yes, we like it was basically like a custom shirt for him. Um, we were just like we ha- we also had to learn how to like measure because we just we both don't have fashion experience, right? So or like garment manufacturing experience, so we had to learn how the how the industry determines like the neck, the sleeve, and all these measurements when it comes to a dress shirt. So yeah, so we learned everything ourselves. He was our first, I guess, size. Uh, he wears the size N one. Um, if people are listening and they're like, wait a minute, this is a crazy ass story. They met on a dating <laughs> app and now they're starting a company together. Um, not only that, uh, even the, the genesis of your, your dating, your love story has an Asian American component to it because coffee meets bagel was started by three Korean American sisters, um, which is crazy, um, <laughs> which is crazy. Uh, and, and they're doing really well. Um, you know, they were one of the companies, um, if you're a big fan of Shark Tank, uh, mm-hmm. they were on Shark Tank. Um, I don't know how serious he was, but Mark Cuban actually offered to buy the whole damn company for $30 million cash on the spot. They said no, and they walked away, and, and good on them for doing that. Um, that's so cool. Um, I mean, it, it's literally, you know, when, when, when we talk to people or when we talk to our friends about, like, entrepreneurship and you go, you know, people try to reverse backwards, right? They go, what's the thing that I can make a lot of money from? Or, you know, mm-hmm. we look for solutions and then the problem, right? Whereas you should focus on the problem and then finding the solution for the thing that actually pains you. Um, mm-hmm. Because especially if you're creating a physical product, like you need to be customer number one, right? Like you need to mm-hmm. understand the frustrations and the pain of that. Um, that is really, really excellent context. Um, talk to me more about like the the process. Okay, so you make the prototype. And, you know, I mean, there are, as you said, many, many other shirt companies out there. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, some spend a lot of money on uh, advertising. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there are other brands that um, just focus on that similar demographic. But what made you guys confident and convicted enough uh, to want to go down this path and how did you validate the idea in its early years? Yeah, we had the idea in March 2018 uh, when we still had our corporate jobs. We worked on the idea or a, or a prototype and a, trying to get a website live for about, I think, a total of six months. So kind of like the road to MVP um, state was around like six months. And in October 2018, six months later, six-ish months later, um, that's kind of when we, at that point, had a small batch of inventory. So, you know, a stack of uh, maybe like 100 shirts in three styles like or, or three colors um, and a, a website that was live, that was functioning, that people could buy the product off of. Um, so it was... It was at that point, October 2018, um, we were kind of like, oh, wow. So we've basically done everything. We have products. We have a channel to sell that product. Um, I feel like if we put any more time into this, it would really affect our corporate jobs and also in general, like our, our personal lives, just number of hours in a day. And so at that point, I think we took that leap of faith uh, to leave our corporate jobs uh, in that fall of 2018. Yeah, so I would say in terms of the validation of the idea, um, all along the way during those six months when we still had our corporate jobs, we were, you know, talking to people, talking to slim guys, some friends or friends of friends being like, hey, 
just asking them some questions about dress shirts and their behaviors shopping with dress shirts. So kind of like your user experience testing or user research testing, you know, asking them, oh, like, did they have trouble finding a good fit? Um, So a lot of it was in that user research and that product research, um, seeing if that was an issue that people had, like, truly, or if it was just in our minds, Um, and then kind of getting samples together and then getting people to try on our different sizes or different fit, getting their feedback. So very um, iterative, but uh, definitely a quick and simple, easy way to test things. Who were your first customers and how did you, what was the feedback like? Um, okay, let's see. Our first customer was Wesley's mom and then our second customer was my dad. <laughs> so really exciting. Um, but no, I think I think uh, after the initial kind of friends and family uh, boost, which you'll get when you first launch something, we were really struggling for a while uh, to kind of get real customers, I guess. So to say, and so we're running Facebook ads. Um, that's kind of how we thought our our um, marketing was gonna was gonna grow. Um, and yeah, so I think I think um, our first customers, you know, we definitely saw because of how we had the website and our messaging on the site, we were very transparent about this immigrant narrative and this like um, size inclusion type of mission that we had I think there were certain people that resonated with that so our customers are a lot of them are Asian or people of color Um, we found out lately that they're a little bit older than we thought they were they're maybe like mid-30s whereas you know I feel like when you build a brand you always think that you're building it for people your age Um, but you know they're a little bit older um, and you know they work at banks law firms a lot of them actually are entrepreneurs themselves so co-founders tech companies um etc i i find your marketing really really fascinating and refreshing um Mm -hmm. you guys are marketing yourselves unapologetically as Mm -hmm. a company founded by asian americans for asian americans um it takes just a few minutes on your website to realize that every single model that is wearing your shirts and they're all real customers. Um, I want to get uh, nerdy on the business side for a little bit and take me through that discussion with Wesley and maybe some of your other advisors where you decided that you wanted to lean in and not just lean in, like just, you know, barge into that identity because so many people out there, and myself included, right? Like I now have an Asian American podcast and we're building even more Asian American podcasts behind this, right? But mm-hmm. but that wasn't, that always comes with sort of the, but am I going too niche, right? Yeah. I have the capability, especially when you're making products, like, you know, everybody needs shirts, not just Asian dudes, but like, you know, and, and if you're, I don't know, playing the numbers game of uh, population, like why focus on 6%, right? 6% mm-hmm. of the American population. We probably over-index on, you know, dudes in New York City that work in white-collar jobs that need shirts, right? Mm-hmm. So it, even that, let's call it very generously 10%, right? Like, how did you come to a point in your own entrepreneurial and branding journey where you decided that leaning into the Asian American, Asian American identity and going all in on it was the right, uh, right move not only in your hearts, but in your brains and also in the spreadsheet. Yep. I think the I think it was very easy to come to that conclusion. One is because we are 
bootstrapped or self-funded. And so, you know, we're not backed by millions of dollars. We're backed by our savings accounts. And so that just has us thinking about, okay, we only have, you know, this much to spend on ads. Like, are we going to try to go for the broad audience? Probably not. Um, or are we going to go into something that we know more about? You know, we have uh, like a baseline community for, we, we know the, the issues that come from this community of slimmer Asians, right? Um, I think it was one of those things where at the beginning we tried doing like this broad outreach, uh, specifically on Facebook ads, but also in press, right? Kind of just being like, hey, GQ, we have the best slim fit ever. No response, right? Like, who are you even? And so it was kind of just, I think it was trying that and then learning that it's really hard to sell stuff online, uh, even when you have the most beautiful design, the most like perfect words on your website. Um, no, it was it was really hard. And so I think what we decided to do then was just take like a very like niche approach. Um, we know that Wesley had this problem. My dad had this problem. We know people in our Asian communities who are slimmer who have this problem. And so we're like, let's start our outreach there. Like, let's do a little bit of grassroots, right? Get some feedback. So let's talk to Asian communities. Let's talk on like a podcast hosted or um, solely around like an Asian American identity, like your own, and just really start to get some of the feedback. And I think that feedback was really, really great. People immediately knew exactly what we we're talking about. I think a lot of the times when you have a business idea and you find yourself needing to explain it because people didn't really understand what you were making. Um, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was tough. But I think that with the Asian community, it was like, wow. Like they like got it immediately. We're like, oh, we make actually slim fit dress shirts. They're like, oh my God, finally. Right. So it was just like really great feedback that we got from the community. And so we're like, hey, let's like really hone in on this. You know, um, I think our site, while we had Asian models already, we made it even like more apparent, right? Let's name the shirts after like, like uh, symbols in our culture, right? Let's just really go in, like all in on it. But at the same time, we don't say this is only for Asians or nor do we think that all Asians are slim. Definitely not, right? And so it was kind of like that that decision that let's focus on something very niche and then we can always, always expand. But it's so much easier going small to big. I think that's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm happy to admit very publicly on the air that I, I am not a slim individual. and uh, But I know that the problem exists, right? Like yeah. I think, but when you look at the world of, men's shirts like there's been sort of this new uh renaissance if you will of d2c companies direct to consumer companies um or just other brands right like um mm -hmm. i don't know untucket was one that was well funded and they spent a ton of money on advertising and you know the tv ads and so on and so forth and uh more recently you know fellow asian entrepreneur um don tran you know uh founder of buttercloth was on shark mm -hmm. tank and then got funded and like so I, I think there's been a revolution of dress shirts that are sort of um, not out of the box only, right? Because mm -hmm. even if you went to a Macy's or a Nordstrom or, you know, any of the, the inline stores in between, um, they all sort of looked and fit the same, right? So mm -hmm. un unless, you know, so I think the, the perhaps the market opportunity was, you know, here's all these big box shirts, literally and figuratively, and then there's people mm -hmm. who can afford custom tailor stuff. And like, mm -hmm. where are we in the middle? And then like, that's sort of the um, gap analysis, right? Like that's the mm -hmm. opportunity. And then how much of that can you get? Mm -hmm. um, I, I don't think it takes, again, um, 
you know, perhaps you don't need to say that you are targeting Asian American customers per se, and then maybe that's not obviously your only demographic um, mm. from from your customer data. But um, I, I do think that you guys are doing far more than just selling shirts. You are actually instilling confidence in fellow people that look like me and you. Um, yeah. who either have been made to feel out or feeling left out, feeling other, or perhaps even ridiculed because of their, you know, slim or, or more smaller body stature, which what can we do about that, right? It's just yeah. the way that genetics play. But then to go to a website, to go to an Instagram page where you scroll and you're like, holy crap, every dude that's looking badass is wearing something, not only that, but also looks like me, right? Mm-hmm. I can visualize, my, visualize myself, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing that. And and then you mentioned something where you said, you know, you don't want to always have to explain yourself. Mm-hmm. And even in clothing, I think it's the context in which you have to understand from the similar yet universal uh, Asian American immigrant, refugee, whatever experience mm-hmm. of, dude, we know this is a problem. So like we're trying to fix it, right? Like yeah. we know there's not enough Asian people, even Asian founders like you being asked to share their story on podcasts. And it's not really tone deaf questions about just the business, right? You have to understand your history. You have to understand the specific problem that your father and Wesley faced as Asian American men to fully understand, appreciate why this company exists in the first place. Mm -hmm. And perhaps the goal isn't even, you know, to the floor rooms or the showrooms of Nordstrom, you know, the perhaps, you know, the goal is really to have an entire generation of Asian American men feel confident about going into work and have like eliminate the shirt as mm-hmm. the thing that actually is the mental block yeah. between them and whatever the hell they want to do. And yeah. as as silly as that may sound, it does play into the way we feel, the way mm-hmm. we look, right? And and so um and you know men and women doesn't matter, right? Um and earlier I made a joke about shirts for men. Women wear dress shirts, other folks wear dress shirts. So um I, it was bothering me, so I mm-hmm. I'll, I'll walk that statement back. Dress shirts are for everybody, yeah. uh, and and if you are uh, if you can fit into the sizing charts that Nimble Made has has created for you, um, and anybody can and should uh, proudly yeah. wear a Nimble Made shirt. And and I wanted to ask you about that. So you yeah. you mentioned a phrase earlier that has never been uttered before, and it is size inclusion. Um, mm. You guys have your own custom sizes. If you go to your website, um, I find this fascinating. So I'm geeking out over this. Right. Okay. Um, you have height and weight sort of matrix suggestions on what a, not a typical, but sort of a, a range of um, height and weight people should look into your N0 through N5 sizes. And yeah. then you have the size calculator that says, how tall are you? How heavy are you? Boom, we recommend this. And mm-hmm. then, you know, uh, bigger dudes like me, I put up my stuff and they're like, no, we don't have stuff for you yet. Right? Like, <laughs> but how, how is, uh, but I don't want to talk about me. I want to talk about the sizing thing, right? Like, why was that important to you? And it's an innovation that I think is overlooked um, mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, how do, again, you're fit, the whole process, the whole point of creating something for Asian men is to create something that doesn't exist. And if we think about the way that sizing is done, mm-hmm. right, let's get real. Mm-hmm. Uh, XS, SM, L, XL are yeah. typical average white dudes that fit into mm-hmm. those categories who are now, who those sizes are somewhat supposed to or the rest of us are supposed to fit into that body type, right? right. And, and genetically, we might be different, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, we are. That's why your company exists. But what was that process like to figure out that the traditional sizing model didn't work in addition to creating shirts for uh, a population that needed it, that you wanted to create a whole new sizing structure to appeal strictly to them? 
Yeah, that's, yeah, it's a great point that I agree is definitely overlooked. Even just me working on the day to day, I'm like, oh, our sizing is very different. Um, but yeah, I think, I think the first thought there was we just didn't believe that, well, for dress shirts、um, as a background, in the men's dress shirt industry, sizes are determined usually by a neck、uh, measurement and a sleeve. Measurement,、right. so it will be you know, oh shoot, like a 14 and a half, like 33、right. or something like that. So, those are kind of like the numbers you would see when you're choosing for a dress shirt size、um, in the industry. And so, for us, we just never, I think, we just thought that was so odd. Like, why does your neck size and your sleeve length determine how the rest of your body、uh, is? And so I think this is like, again, Wesley and I don't have fashion experience. We don't really know anything about garments. I think it was just this like, shouldn't it be like height and weight though? Like, shouldn't it be some sort of proportional like way to, to go about it? Or it's almost like body mass index in a way、um, where you're thinking about how, how tall you are and in relation to that, like your weight, right? And so just naturally, it just seemed like the, We just knew the neck and the sleeve just seemed like an outdated way to do things. In our research,、uh, when we we're like talking to users or talking to or, or interviewing people, we realized a lot of people also didn't know their neck and their sleeve length.、Um, so, you know, they would have to go to the store, they would, have to, they would have to first feel bad about needing to take apart the dress shirts that's been folded so nicely in the stores,、um, only to not know how to put it back.、Um, and so, well, yeah. So we need 20 pins in it. That's hard.、Yeah. They're, 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 and some of them are really sharp, too. I'm I, like, I don't,、wow. I don't know. Like, they, they keep the pin business afloat because there's like 30, <laughs> 30 pins per shirt. That's so g u y Guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Pins everywhere. Yeah, that's, yeah, it's crazy. So I think、uh, we, we learned that people don't know their size or they kind of like what you were saying before had different sizes across different brands, even with X small to XL.、Mm, sometimes、right. they were XL, sometimes they were small, sometimes they were medium, right? So, It was this whole notion of this really conventional and like traditional sizing approach that the fashion industry has kind of like used、um, that we thought was really outdated. And we just wanted to make something that was just so much clearer and so much easier for the end customer. I think a lot of the times、um, we, it, we realized it also makes it a lot easier for women to buy dress shirts for men. Because As someone who was looking for a dresser for my dad or for Wesley, no idea what 14 is, no idea what 33 is. <laughs> no, like, no clue.、Yeah. And it's like a weird thing to ask, especially if you're trying to surprise someone or gift someone something. And it's so specific that you're like, there's no way I'm going to get this like, size right. And so, by just in general, by like, lowering the barrier of entry, by being, hey, you, you, can, you generally know their height and weight or your own height and weight. Just put it into our little calculator that we have on our site. Here's a recommended size. So, I will caveat that when we started the brand, we did start with an X small to a XL、uh, nomenclature. So, our sizes were X small to XL. And then, you know, like that was, that was only for a really short period of,、uh, amount of time. I think maybe like the first few months we launched, people were really confused because they were like, I'm usually. A small, but then I'll need to get a large with you because we have a really slim fit.、Um, so it was this like, it's also, I don't know, it's, it's also like the、uh, connotations of those sizings too. Like 
like large and XL and three XL just sounds so bad too, right? So let's it's just like it's just like I just like hate it. So it was just really just making it a lot simpler and a lot more like inclusive and just making it just just easier and like pain free for people. <laughs> yeah. That's very cool. I mean, look, I, I think there's just so many small nuanced aspects of your business that I think, you know, again, if we were to nerd out over it, um, it's cool because it's intentionally or or as as much as you can pretty inclusive. You also have like photos of customers modeling your shirts and saying like, yo, here's this guy who's this height, this weight you know, lives in this part of the world who's wearing yeah. one of our shirts. And like, so, you know, it's not just a picture perfect model in a, you know, well-lit studio that's, you know, representing your product. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's just the ability for those of us to see ourselves modeled in the clothes that are made for us. Right. So, yeah. um, I, I think that's super fascinating. Um, I want to touch on a a few things that I think our listeners might be curious about. Um, So I'll I'll start with the first is um, how do you manage successfully to run a business with somebody that you are currently dating and living with, uh, particularly in COVID times where there's actually no separation of anything? Um, what, What are some business lessons and just personal growth and other sort of lessons that you've learned um, and that Wesley has learned um, from your perspective mm-hmm. of, um, you know, because we always, you know, it's it's that work-life balance, right? But for entrepreneurs, yeah. it means something different. Um, but for, you know, people who have to start something with their sibling or start something with their, you know, um, uh, their partner, like, it's also very different. Mm-hmm. How, how do you manage that for yourself? Mm. It's, uh, it's a continuous learning journey, <laughs> for sure. Um <laughs> When people ask us, you know, like, if they're a couple and they ask us, like, oh, you know, like, should we should we also start a business together as a couple? Most of the time we'll say no. It is extremely, extremely difficult. Um, I think what I think by nature, Wesley and I work well together because we're open minded. We're very open minded. We are able to think logically without being too emotionally kind of, um, I guess, involved in like business decisions. So there's like this like clear distinction of like, are you talking to me about the business as a co-founder right now or as like a partner? There's like these really like nuanced things where I think, especially when you're uh, critiquing each other's work um, or having a debate or a larger kind of brainstorm session, that you go into it with an open mind and that you don't receive feedback as like a critique for who you are as a person. Um, that's really, really hard to do because in general, when, pe- when people get critiqued, they're like, I think that it's that auto like defense, like, no, I'm not. Or like, no, I didn't mean that. Um, and so it's really making sure that first and foremost, the relationship is really solid. First and foremost, like, you shouldn't be, you know, like at each other's throats every day already uh, before you start the business. Definitely not. Um, but Wesley and I were, I think we felt good enough uh, because I th- also what is a good test too is just work on like a project together. Something super small, like 
uh, cook meals together or like <laughs> paint paint something together. Start something really small because I'm all I'm I'm pretty like risk adverse. So you know you kind of want to like try some things first before you go all in. Um, yeah. So I mean that's yeah. Th- those are some lessons that I've learned is just to personally not not take anything um, personally um, and that you know. It, everything that's being said and done between us is for the betterment of both the business ourselves individually and us together. Great lessons. Um, I mean, some of the world's biggest organizations are built together by couples. Um, but we also know for anybody who's ever been in a relationship or married or, you know, is a child of any parent, like, Mm. you know, we express things very differently and perhaps more emotionally with, the ones that we love most than we would yeah. in a non-emotional business setting. Um, let's talk about 2020. Um, it's been a hell of a year. We know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, ho- hopefully this back half uh, is a little bit better than the front half. Um, but you guys personally and professionally have, have been going through a lot in 2020. Um, mm-hmm. for, first, you decided to move the company um, and all of your stuff uh, from New York to LA, uh, mm-hmm. closer to your home, um, and, and, and you know uh, would like to um, you know, chat about that a little bit. Um, and, uh, and obviously to learn about, uh, COVID, right. Um, one thing that people aren't doing because we are in COVID land is going (laughs) to work physically. And as a result, people aren't wearing work clothes to go to work and you are in the business of selling generally work clothes or even going out clothes, right? Like nice clothes. Um, um, I don't know when the last, you know, like most, like even when we work from home, maybe if you work for professional companies and I would love to get your context on this, right? Like maybe if you still work for a law firm or a bank or something and you have to zoom and like, you still have to look presentable on on a zoom call, perhaps you're still buying shirts. Um, I haven't, I just wear t-shirts all the time because I can. Mm -hmm. Um, but like, what, what is that? Like, what has that been like for you? The impact of, COVID, um, on your business, on your sales, on your own marketing, um, Mm -hmm. particularly in light of the fact that you guys are having another, you know, big impactful year, picking up everything and, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, reestablishing operations in a brand new state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When COVID hit, um, specifically when the stay at home was kind of implemented, I would say March this year. That's when we really felt the effects of COVID on the business. And so in March, you literally see like the revenue chart just go straight down to like zero. Um, and that's expected, obviously. Um, people are more concerned about their health, more concerned about how am I going to stay safe? Are my friends and my family okay? Kind of more in that first stage of like Matt Maslow's hierarchy of needs where you're like, I just need the primary foundational things to stay alive right now before I can think about anything else. Right. So understandable. Uh, I mean, Wesley and I, my whole family, we're all really concerned ourselves too. So at the same time, we weren't like, how do we capitalize on this right now? Um, So yeah, March took a big hit, but since then it's been improving this month in July, we're actually all time high for our whole business, which is, very surprising to me as well yeah i don't what do you attribute that to um, i think i attribute it to two things one being 
Wesley and me being more focused on our goals and our metrics, being really laser focused on the business side, on the back end of like what we're trying to achieve and how we're doing that. That's one thing. I think the second thing is overall just the improvement in the macroeconomics of of the world. Sure, people are still stay at home, but maybe they're a little bit more comfortable at home now. And they're like, Oh, I want I still want to look good. Oh, I still need dress shirts, because they think it's going to be over soon, or eventually it will be over or in general, um, just shopping behaviors at home, maybe have like spiked because now that's been a few months, they're kind of like, maybe bored or want to try something new, for example. And so it's interesting, because I am also very, very surprised. Um, I, yeah, I also am very, very surprised, but you know, good, good results. That's fast. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean just, I, I don't know, like run, run, uh, like a feedback, right? Like ask your customers, like, why the hell did you buy from us in July? That's insane. Right. Like, cause it's, it's yeah. not, um, and I'm shocked, not as like, oh my God, like, it's just counterintuitive, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, cause there's, there was not, and, and still isn't a large wave of people that went back to work. Right. Right. Um, The financial situation hasn't changed drastically for most Mm -hmm. people. If you Mm -hmm. still had a paycheck in March, you probably still have it now. Um, If you had to go on unemployment, you're still probably on the unemployment. So like um, really curious, I guess, you know, and and come back and share with us when you find out like what external thing that happened or, or perhaps it's something that was outside of your control where maybe people are still continuing to buy shirts and it was a recommendation or a feature or a group of people or, or something that. Um, you, it's really hard to figure out where the, um, sort of the, the virality might come from. Right. Yeah. Um, but that's really, really fascinating. I think it just comes back to this idea that these group of people have n- never found a good fitting shirt. Like we have customers coming back to us all the time. They're like, I've tried for 10 years looking for a brand that fit me as well as your shirt does. And like that, I, I can't believe I wasted so much money trying to do that. Right. And so I think just thinking at the core of like humans and being uh, empathetic with their issues, it's like they wake up, they want to, you know, be productive at work. They want to look good, even maybe even more so now that you have to work from home. Right. I think thinking about our customers and like the marketing messaging that we put out there is basically like, this is a better slim fit than what you have, or, you know, we have the best slim fit. This is actually slim. And so we know a lot of customers are resonating with that message because they know that their fit can be much, much better. Right. And so it's just this, I think it's just this human thing that, you know, they're still on the search for finding clothes Mm -hmm. that fit them, whether that's dress shirts or not, they still want to feel good and like what they wear and look good in what they yeah. wear. Um, and so, you know, we see search queries. Um, people are still typing in, how do I find a slim fit shirt? Where can I find shirts for skinny guys? Sometimes they'll even type in like an Asian fit. Like how do I buy like an Asian fit? Um, so yeah, like that behavior has not changed. Right. So it's just this, this, yeah, it's just this, this, this gap in the menswear that people are like, I like, where can I find better clothes? That's very cool. Um, I'm assuming that your, your repeat and referral business is pretty robust. Our repeat is pretty, yes. So very brand loyal customers. That is awesome. Um, look, I, I think we can get, uh, you know, geeked out on, on business talks for many, many more hours. Um, I highly, highly encourage, uh, people 
that are listening, men or women, um, uh, slim or not, uh, to, to go check it out. And I think I, I share this on the show every chance that I get. Um, life is hard. Starting a business is hard. And the community, the first level of support, obviously, is going to be from your personal circle. Um, the second level of support has to come from our community to support our people, to support our businesses. And every individual localized community will say that, right? Um, but really, if you are spending money on clothes, if you are buying dress shirts, whether it is for you or for a gift, um, consider. Um, and again, this comes under the assumption that the products are of equal quality. And I think your products are pretty good quality based on all the reviews and, and all the, you know, the, the, the things that are being said out there about it. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, like J crew and banana Republic, they don't need more of your money, (laughs) but you know, Tanya, Tanya and Wesley are, are trying and they have started something that was built specifically to fix a problem for people that are in our community. And, and so, um, you know, give it a try. And I'm not, you know, uh, we don't make any money on the show here if you buy a Nimble Made shirt or not. I don't have any <laughs> vested interest in whether you do it or not. What I am 100% passionate about, and if you've listened to any of our shows, you will undoubtedly agree that I am 100% in full support of supporting fellow Asian and Asian American entrepreneurs and their businesses because life is hard as it is. And if we don't support each other, and yet we have the money leaving the community into the pockets of multinational corporations who actually don't even spend an ounce of their money or their time investing back into our community. Mm-hmm. What are we really doing when we say that we are members of the community? The community aspect is a social contract for us to support each other and to have the cycle keep going. Are we so exclusive that we don't want a dollar leaving, never leaving the community? Of course not. But if you can and if you have a choice, look around the room, ask your friends and ask for recommendations, right? Supporting Asian owned businesses right now in 2020 isn't just ordering from the local Chinese, Korean, Thai, Filipino food restaurant. Every Thursday you order takeout. <laughs> That's a good start, but look out, look at how you can change a little bit of your spending habits. Do the research on the companies to whom you give your money to see where they stand, not only on social issues, but on cultural issues. How is your money going to help further causes that are important to you? And it's not just about writing a check to a political candidate or to a nonprofit. You can actually participate in capitalism, in commerce, and still have that. So if you believe in the same things that we do or that I do on this show, which is that we need to support, celebrate, and to inspire fellow Asian Americans into the things that they want to do, um, business has to be a part of it. Mm -hmm. And there's no shame. And we want to celebrate more entrepreneurs that have taken the deep dive into the Asian American customer segment and to say, Guys, we are making products specifically for us because we and only we know what that pain looks like and what that pain feels like. And from the perspective of somebody who's in the trenches with you, literally and figuratively, we're making products to fill needs for our own community. Mm -hmm. And I want to encourage people out there, if you're thinking about starting a business, our segment is by far not a small niche that you should ignore. Um, Every data, every research project out there. you know, uh, we're actually getting ready to release um, from our company side at Just Like Media a research report that we commissioned on Asian American podcasting. And a big chunk of that is we have a big, big spending power, right? We mm-hmm. have, um, we're 
you know, small but mighty, 6%, but we over-index on spending, we over-index on income, we over-index on education. So even from a commerce perspective, well, of course it feels right in our heart to do something that is of and for and by the community, but um, it makes business sense too. And and mm -hmm. so, um, yeah, uh, go check out, you know, nimble-made.com. Go check him out on Instagram at nimblemade um, without the dash. And do your part um, as you, you know, um, and even that, like follow their account, share it out, even if it's not for you, right? Um, we need to do, I think, everything that we can to help facilitate the amplification of our voices and our stories. Um, obviously, that's what we do here on the show. And mm -hmm. we try to talk to a wide array of Asian American folks from all walks of life, ages, countries, circumstances, and, and professions. And ultimately, it is to inspire uh, the next generation or even the current generation of us to do more and to dream more and to actually inspire even more people to do crazy stuff. Um, <laughs> so Tanya, I, I want to thank you for joining us on the show. Um, we, this has been great. This has been a lot of fun. Um, yeah. I, you know, uh, I don't know to, to, I guess, uh, I, I would need to lose some weight now to no. be, be a, be a recurring customer. No, it's something I probably should do anyway. Um, but, um, I will. And and if my wife is listening, she's probably like, hell yeah. Um, oh, no. no you look I, great. It's, it, thank you. Um, if you're listening and you're like, what the hell? What? Okay, fine. Watch the videos. We're on YouTube too. So um, if, you, if all you're doing is listening, um, reminder that all of our interviews eventually make their way onto our uh, YouTube page. Um, we end up all of our shows um, with an homage back to the title of the show, which is The Asian Americans. And even though we've had a, a pretty... I don't, know, I don't know how long we've been talking, a really yeah. good, fun, and engaging conversation. We always want to end the episodes in a particular letter to the community um, for us and by us and ultimately about us. Um, I guess it's a letter to us and from us, ultimately for us. Um, and, and so would love for you to share and help us close out the show a letter that you would like to write or speak to the Asian American community. And so if you could help me finish the show by completing the letter, dear Asian Americans. Throughout my journey with starting Nimble Made, I realized the biggest obstacle throughout almost all of it was myself. It sounds very confusing, but I just always found myself like doubting myself with like whether the product was good, whether this idea was right, whether I should quit my job, whether throughout all of it, it was just I just was always finding myself in my own way. And that's one of the most frustrating things I've ever uh, encountered. And so I think with that said, I would say just really believe in yourself, really push your potential. People will try to break you down and say that, oh, no, this fit isn't even that good, for example. Um, but I think you got to stick true to your gut and to what you're really passionate about. And you just need to get out of your own way. Thank you. I think that was perfect, um, appropriate. Um, and you're right. Um, we all collectively, um, and maybe even now in, in, in someone, like we have been conditioned to live, uh, to please the expectations of other people. And whether that is uh, your mom, who we all love our moms, but you know, sometimes they don't give the world's best advice. Um, our, our friends, our own families, our community, our societies, 
Um, here to remind you again, you are living your own life as is Tanya, as am I. And as hard as it is, um, the faster you can get to a point where you realize that only you uh, can dictate the terms of your own life and to live by your own definitions of success and happiness, whatever that may be, I think you get to a point where you thrive. I think you get to a point of just happiness and being really at ease and at peace of what you've decided to do. Um, you know, this is a simple math question that you can do in your head. Um, let's say hypothetically that you try to please everybody else in the world. That's about 7 billion people. <laughs> Statistically, you'll get to zero if you try to appease all 7 billion. Now, if you come up with your own set of guidelines on what makes you happy and what makes you successful, even if you miss, it's a hell of a lot bigger than zero. And so take that chance. Um, and it's okay to quit your well-paying day jobs um, and to believe in something as great as creating slim fit dress shirts uh, to target to a specific audience that many, many larger companies with larger uh, branding and marketing accounts have said, no, that's too small for us to pursue. We want to yeah. play in the big fish pool. And this is not about small pond, big pond. This is about the right pond. This is about our pond. And then for us to create things that we can all really benefit from, but also be really proud of. Um, so Tanya, I, I want to thank you. Um, you've been supportive of me and supportive of the show. And um, it really, I, I think in challenging years like 2020 and in challenging times like we're all going through now, um, we want to support those of us, friends of ours in the community. Um, we're all trying to grow the pie, right? What, in mm -hmm. whatever way, shape that means. So um, good luck to you guys in your next chapter of being an LA-based company. Congratulations to you on being accepted into the Grid 110 Accelerator, which is a big deal here in the Los Angeles startup community. Okay. Um, welcome, welcome home. Um, you know, good luck to you in, in your next chapters, both professionally and personally with your co-founder and boyfriend, uh, <laughs> Wesley. Um, I actually had to ask for the people wondering, I was like, what's the relation? Are you guys, guys co-founders? <laughs> um, we'll yeah. clarify that. And so, um, if you're wondering too, uh, that's the story behind it. Um, and, and best of luck. And, and again, for anybody listening, um, you know, maybe you're a super early planner and you're looking at Christmas gifts already. Um, yes. ain't, ain't nobody buying back to school presents. So, uh, just go straight to Christmas. Um, go to nimble-made.com, uh, follow them on nimblemate at nimblemate on Instagram and really support, uh, through your actions, support through your wallets and support by sharing out with your friends who might be interested or benefit from this. Um, but most importantly, share their story, share their story that it's okay and actually very wildly successful for them to create a business and for you to create a business as they did, as I am specifically catered and tailored for our own Asian American audiences. So Tanya, I want to thank you again. Um, any, any last words of advice or anything you want to leave us with? Hmm. Thank you so much, first and foremost, for having me. This has been great. I've been a big fan of the podcast since you started. And wow, just crazy how fast and big it's grown since then. So kudos to you. Definitely not any easier or harder than any other business, too. So that's amazing. Um, I think in terms of last words, um, feel free to reach out to me. Um, if you go on the website, there's like this little chat bot in the corner. 
um, what people you, may think is a bot is really me. Are, are you are you the chatbot? <laughs> I am the chatbot. I am the customer service rep and co-founder. So yeah, you can always chat me there. <laughs> when you're starting something, you got to wear all the hats. Oh God, yeah, yeah. it's fun. <laughs> more, more, more professional multiple hat wear. Um, yes. Thank you again for coming on the show. Um, I mean, we we. There's so much about your own story um, and our intersection uh, with the organization that uh, you're a part of, the Cosmos. Um, mm-hmm. Shout out to Cass, a guest yep. on episode number two, um, and very many other people who I know we cross paths with. Um, continue kicking ass out there. Continue making us proud. And best of luck to you and Wesley. Thanks so much. Learned a lot about the shirt business. Learned a lot about their story. And really excited to continue supporting Asian American-owned businesses all across the world. Check out Nimble Made, a great business. They got some great following and really excited to share their story with you. If you have an Asian American business that you want to have highlighted on the show, uh, send them our way along with your guest recommendations and anything else. Look for us on Instagram, DM us at the Asian Americans or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, wherever you find us. Or you can shoot us an email Hello at TheAsianAmericans.com, and I'd be happy to take your suggestions. Always wishing you health, safety, and happiness. Until next time, this has been your host of The Asian Americans, Jerry Wan.